0: and this chapter 20, we continue our exposition through the Ten Commandments. It's a it's a pleasure to be here and preaching the word of the Lord. It's a pleasure to meet you, I, I, I uh, and I hope that we do get to have a, a handshake and a chat later if I've not uh, not had the, the, the pleasure so far. I'm Tom. I'm the preaching pastor here, and uh, we, we love and we submit to the fact that God reveals himself to us in and through his word, the Bible, and so it is the job of every local church, not everybody does this, but it is the job. And the responsibility of every local church to come to God's word and there is where we are fed with truth from heaven for the good of our souls. So today we find ourselves looking at the second of the ten words as the original Hebrew says or as our usual nomenclature in English is to call it the the Ten Commandments. We've, we've been on a series throughout the book of Exodus, and we've seen God's, god's marvelous redemption, his heroic salvation, his, his redemption that he wrought for Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and brought them into the wilderness through the Red Sea, and there was, there was so many gospel pictures throughout it all, that God defeated the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian slavery... Just as God in Christ defeats our slavery of sin and overpowers the devil over those who are now called Christians but were formerly under his dominion. We saw that they were saved in the night. They were were spared by the wrath of God because they had the blood of a lamb that was shed for them in their place. And so we see that God, his wrath passes over nobody except for those who by faith have called the blood of Jesus to their account. Also, we saw that they were saved through the Red Sea as if as this picture of baptism that God cleanses and washes us clean of our old life as we come to be known by Jesus Christ as saints and as Christians. And now we've seen that they've been sustained through the desert. They come to Mount Sinai where God first appeared to Moses in the flaming bush. And now he is appearing to the whole nation, the multitude, as a flaming mountain. The the whole mountain is shaking. We remember that the mountain is encased with not just cloud, but billowing smoke. God has appeared on the mountain in flame behind the smoke and within the smoke that his voice is coming out like thunder. In the background, there is angelic trumpets blasting from heaven and there is lightnings that are shooting out around as well. And the Lord speaks and gives his law to his people. We we remember, I just want to set us into the right posture before we read the first two of the Ten Commandments. We we remember that the law given by God, even though it condemns us, it is still one of the elements of God's salvation for us. That just as God saved Israel out of a tyrannical law under Israel, Egypt he's also saving them from the the tyranny of chaos and no law so that we need to be saved from 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 from, from death Because of the law's condemnation. But we also need to be saved as people. We know this. We need to be saved from our own folly, our own sin, by being given instruction with the wisdom of heaven that comes to us in the law. So we're thankful to God for his ten commandments. And we're going to read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through to verse 6. Hear now the words of the one true living God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them. Or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. May God bless the reading of His own precious, inspired law in our midst this morning. Let's do that again. Some of you are new and you don't know how we work here. I say that at the end of the reading of God's word and we all say that is true. That's what we got up this morning for. We want God to bless the word in our midst for our growth and his glory. May God bless his own word in our midst this morning. There we go. We're ready. We are ready. Commandment number one and commandment number two are different. They're not the same commandment. Augustine taught the, chap, the, the commandment number one and number two are just, are just uh, two, two, two halves of the same commandment. And basically they boil down to this. Only worship the true God. In two parts it comes. Have no other gods and also don't worship those gods through images. That is how the Catholic Church divides up the Ten Commandments and then makes the Ten Commandments two so that they nicely and conveniently avoid the commandment to not bow down to statues. The, two, the first two commandments are different. Last week we learned, don't worship any other gods. Last week we learned in the first commandment... Only worship Yahweh. This is the who you are to worship. This week we're learning, don't worship the right God in the wrong way. So that last week it was who we are to worship, and this week it is how we are to worship the one true God. So, so God, just at the beginning of, 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 of this recognition, as we come to the law, we realize this God just doesn't really care much for as long as you're sincere. He doesn't come down to earth and say, hey guys, I don't know what the big fuss is about. Whatever, you do you. However you feel like you're relating to me, as long as I've got the right name, maybe even not. Just you do what you like to relate to me and that'll be enough for me. No, God doesn't care as, that, that, that is, as long as we're sincere, he'll accept our worship. What we recognize is that God demands only he be worshiped. And then he goes even further to demand that there are certain rules that you you cannot break in the worship of him. It is not true. It is not true that in biblical religion, anything is better than nothing. In the Bible, you'd be better off being a a lonesome nomad worshipping the desert god than being one of God's people who try and come into his presence worshipping him however you like. Because you get turned to a crisp doing that. You live a long life in idolatry, sure. But at least yeah, a longer life, at least, in a pagan nation. So, so anything is not better than nothing in biblical religion. This is what, this is what uh, uh, opens the, the, the understanding of what we've spoken about before, that is the regulative principle of worship. That, that worship is not allowed to be created, designed, up and imagined by us in how we worship God, but rather the simple fact that God gives this second commandment tells us that worship is acceptable to God only as long as we worship the way that he commanded. That is, that is part and parcel of this second commandment. So it is distinct from the first, but we've, we said last week that at every one of these ten commandments we'll be asking three questions. How does this law, how does this commandment, how does it reveal God to us? What, what does it say? Because, because we were saying that the law is a revelation of God, it's a good thing. So that would mean then that in every commandment, there's something to learn about God. So, firstly, how does this reveal God? Secondly, of course, the commandment is a guide to us and is a standard. Therefore, we ask, where is the law? Where is the commandment? How do we obey it? And then, thirdly, we will be asking, what is the gospel? Where is the gospel here? How does the gospel save us from condemnation from this commandment? How does Jesus fulfill this commandment and lead us onwards in joyous obedience to God? So, first of all, how does this commandment how does this commandment reveal God to us? And first of all, it tells us God is without form, and therefore every image or idol is a lie. God is a God who is spirit. He is without form. That is technical language for body and parts and limitation. He he doesn't have edges. He doesn't have any physical, visible form in his essence. And that is why for us to ever ever look at an image or to carve something as an idol and then say, this is a good representation of God, that image is lying to us, no matter how sincere we are. It is telling us something immediately, necessarily, fundamentally wrong about God, which is that he can be depicted in an image. We see that in this scene, Sinai, it, it, the, the way that it happens, not just what God says, but the way that God speaks to his people here on Sinai becomes somewhat of a, of a paradigm for later revelation. Or we could say this, the way that God reveals himself today helps us understand the words that he reveals. So this is what Deuteronomy 4 says. Deuteronomy, uh, a generation later, as they're about to go into the promised land, Moses is quoting God as saying this. And he's speaking about the Sinai day. That is the day that they heard the Ten Commandments. He says this, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Verse 15 says this, Therefore, watch yourself very carefully. Since you saw no form on that day when Yahweh spoke to you at Sinai, out of the midst of the fire... Therefore beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of of any figure, in the likeness of male or female, the likeness of an animal on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, etc. So it goes on. What is the harm of worshipping the true God through a picture? God has never, ever revealed himself To be uh, contained in or rightly represented by any statue, by any image, by any animal whatsoever. We have to understand this very important distinction. Just because God reveals his glory through creation does not mean that we can take any one created thing and say that it's holy and truly represents God to us to be worshipped. Do you understand the vital importance of the distinction there? Just because you can go up to a mountain uh, at sunset or, or you can look at a dog, never a cat, but maybe a dog or a lion. And you say, doesn't God picture himself as a mighty lion in the Bible? Yes. And, and isn't he like an eagle that carries us? And isn't he like a solid rock? And isn't he like a, a, a fountain in the desert? Doesn't the Bible itself say this? We say Yes. Yes. It says it. Like I might say, God's strong like a rock. You know what words aren't? They're not a graven image. What we don't put up is a big picture of a lion behind us on the PowerPoint and have you worship it as if it was God. So the the fact that God can reveal his glory in such a way through creation does not follow that we can take those instances of creation and say the fullness of God can be worshipped in you. It is always idolatry because God has no Form. Therefore, any idol lies. We could go on to say this. It reveals about God that he is without limit in his perfection, and therefore every image insults him. It insults him. Because God has no limitation, not just in his body. It's not just that he doesn't have a physical, visible body. It's that conceptually... In his essence, he has no limitation to his infinite glory and beauty and majesty and power and spiritual nature and eternality and love and justice. He is a a glorious, infinite, incomprehensible God. That means that any time. We make anything physical to reflect him, say. Say we, we take a very biblical image and, and we craft something that looks like this, this picture that Revelation gives to us. Or, or a picture of the, the mighty divine warrior that Isaiah gives to us. Or, or something out of Daniel and, and we put it together and we say, God put this in the Bible. We're going to make a picture of it to represent him to us, even that is insulting to God because those images that God gives us in the Bible are only meant to and only able to reflect certain elements of his character and never able to reflect the fullness of his being. Because he is without limit and because images and graven idols are necessarily limited in their scope. You might look at a lion and say, yes, God is powerful. Okay, but what about his sacrificial mercy? Oh, oh, that's right. We'll, we'll make him a mother that is caring for children. Okay, what about his wrath and his fearfulness? Oh, okay, I see. Well, we'll make, him, we'll make him look like this. Okay, and what about all of the other infinite amount of attributes that are missing in any picture? Idolatry insults God because no matter The accuracy or the biblical inspiration of a picture, it always tells us, suggests to us, a limitation of God's other attributes. Therefore, in Isaiah, as God is from chapter 40 through 45, as as he's uh, uh, rebuking the Israelites for their idolatry, he says to them, to whom will you compare me? What animal could ever be crafted in such a way that is even comparable to me that you can look at it and say, this is Yahweh, and you don't just vomit? That is an insult that you think that I can be comprehended or or pictured in these things. He says, there is none like me. They are static, limited in scope creations. They are unable to reflect God. We also learn from this commandment that God is jealous, and therefore, it is very insult it is an insulting act of cosmic treason to commit idolatry it's not just wrong it's not just incorrect and it's not just insulting it is an act of rebellion against the highest authority and despite what other theologians will try and tell us these days god does care deeply and burn furiously about sin God says in this own commandment in this very one that we just read. He says, "I am a jealous God." In Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is picked up. And he's uh, just later on from what we were reading earlier, and Moses tells the people about to go into the promised land, "When your father, when you father children and children's children, and they have grown old and you have grown old in the land, if you act corruptedly, By making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, Moses says. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. God judges idolatry in real time, history, physical, visible, tangible ways. This law tells us, reveals to us something about God that when you look at something that cannot, by any stretch of the imagination, truly reflect Him in His infinite glory, He is provoked to anger. He is jealous over his own glory. He loves us and he wants us to comprehend him as he really is, not as we pretend him to be. Therefore, this word, this commandment, this law reveals to us much about God, but we can go further. What's the law here? We've touched on it, of course, what not to do, but let's get a little bit more practical. Start, start breaking it down a little bit into its parts and say, what, what is it commanding us to do? What is, it, what is it prohibiting us from doing? First of all, do not, and, and this, is, this is now in the context of Christians in a church where, where this side of Jesus, where, where we're redeemed. What does this law instruct to us today? And number one, it says, do not worship God through images. That was an easy application to arrive at. It's right there in the text. It remains binding on Christians who worship this God who has no form in his essential nature to never worship God through images. It is idolatry even if you call it Jesus, even if you call it Yahweh. Do you recognize that and do you recall that when Moses comes down towards the, the, the end of Exodus a little bit more, when, when Moses comes down after 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain with God receiving law, when he comes back down, and we're probably familiar at least with the, a few notions of the story if you're a new Christian, probably in detail if you're an aged Christian, you remember that when Moses comes down to the Israelite camp excited to give them the law and teach them everything that God had commanded and he hears a, a sound of war in the camp. It sounds like there is, there, there, there is tumult and people are killing each other and God says, oh no, it's a, it's a party. They're having a worship conference. Get down there. And, and, well, that sounds pretty exciting. A loud worship session is always good, right? A sincere worship session is always good, right? But they had not received the instructions of how to worship. And so when somebody gets down there, what does he find? Does he find the Israelites bowing down to Baal? Does he find the Israelites bowing down to the Egyptian gods? No. He finds the the, the Israelites bowing down to the golden calf that they have named Yahweh, saying, he led us out of Egypt, let's worship him in this form. The the, the sin that they were breaking, for which God punished them by killing many of them, it was just the priest's job, grab a sword, blindfold, just just start going through the camp, just cut anybody that's next to you, kill them all. That, That was the command. Sorry, if you're not comfortable. I'm not, sorry. That's, that's the God we serve. That's what happened. Not at all in place today. Don't worry about it. Uh, thank God we're in the new covenant era. Uh, deacons, don't, they're not packing. We're, we're, all, we're all safe here today. But they, they, were, they were killed. And then, and then God also ground down the golden image, turned it into dust. It was put in the water, and then they were made to drink it. Why? Why did God, was it because they were worshiping a different God and they weren't thankful for being redeemed from Egypt? No, no, they were worshipping him, but they were worshipping him through an image. So God doesn't care if you're trying to worship him, but it's through an image. He doesn't care how sincere you are worshipping with an image. He outright prohibits any kind of Catholic. We see this in the Eastern Orthodox kind of churches with with icons or statues or pictures and paintings, stained glass windows, not necessarily idolatrous, but they can be used in that way. A picture on your phone, a background, anything can be used by by the sinful human heart to worship God being represented in pictures and God threatens that kind of thing so we do not do it. We do not even get close. But then I would say probably secondarily, a little bit deeper down, a little bit maybe not not so obvious on the surface, secondly, this law commands to us that we do not use images or visual aids to incite devotion in worship. We do not use images or visual aids to incite from us and deepen our sense of devotion and worship. This could be, for you, a cultural piece of art. A, a famous Renaissance painting of Jesus Christ, white boy with long blonde hair. You should throw that out for all other kinds of reasons. But, but especially it ought not ever be used, Christians do this, a kind of looking at it during prayer to sort of deepen a sense of devotion some of us, it's a, it's a movie or a TV show. And I've known people. They'll take screenshots of it, put it in the back of the Bible. And, and in, in times where, where praying is hard and the mind is wandering there, they pick up Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ or, or some other kind of a uh, 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 picture or piece of media. And they'll, they'll look at it and, and, and they'll try and deepen and, and sense. And they'll tell me, it's just not sinful. It's, it's deepening my devotion. Friends, any... Any sense of devotion that comes from an image is necessarily and immediately, as soon as it is felt in your heart, already corrupted. It is sin that you are enjoying. I'm not saying it doesn't feel good. I'm not saying it doesn't feel like it helps. I'm saying sin is deceptive. You're a sinner. That is wrong. We ought not ever use, a. Uh, maybe it's even a crucifix that your Catholic grandnonna gave you. Maybe it's a, it's a picture in the back of the Bible, like we said, or even just a cross. Even, what's so harmful about a cross, uh, an empty cross? Not a Catholic crucifix with, with Jesus hanging there, but just an empty cross. What would be so wrong about that? Oh, we need be so careful if, if a little wooden, wooden cross that we grab during prayer if, if a little picture that we run our hands over, if, if a mental image that we need to picture Jesus on the cross in such a way and try and look deeply into his eyes, because that's what our devotional app told us to do with the back synthetic piano music. If that is what we are doing, the worship and devotion that we are giving is necessarily and immediately corrupted. God would prefer you feel less enticed and less sincere and less deep and less devoted if you just did so according to his laws he knows he knows what we are made of he knows that we are visual creatures he knows that we are made of dust that we have we have darting minds and and short attention spans he knows he gave us a word book not a picture book he knows that he did not give us idols, but gave us a formless God to worship. He understands. And therefore, when you feel that tension in your heart during worship or, or during prayer and devotion, uh, as you feel that tension to go, I, I just wish I could, I could grasp visually onto something to lock my eyes on, turn to God and say, you have not willed it to be so now. If I was, if I was on earth at the same time as Jesus, sure. When, when Jesus comes back and we have face-to-face, embodied, faithless worship, isn't that great that in heaven there'll be no such thing as faith? We'll just have pure sight. You don't have to believe him for anything. He's right there. Faith will be eradicated as sight is fulfilled. But until then, live in the tension of never being able to worship God in and through a visible image, statue, or icon. And thirdly, this reveals to us of God, this, the, 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 this commands us from God, rather. Firstly, don't worship God through, through images. Don't try and use images to incite devotion. Thirdly, even deeper, we, we remember that we were talking about the law, that it, it doesn't just speak to our actions, but even deeper to our hearts. This is one of those. Don't tolerate in your family, in yourself, in your church, An editing and a constant reshaping of God as he has revealed himself in scriptures. It's been said that long before anybody bows down physically to a crafted image, they have already edited God in their mind. We recast the idea of God in the imagination and then that imagination becomes an image creation it always starts in the mind. It always starts in the heart. And therefore, you have to catch yourself. You have to be on guard as God commands the Israelites, lest any of you see something about God and think, gee, I'm, I'm just not sure I would do it that way. Oh, oh, he's an angry man, this, this, this God. Oh, he's a, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a grumpy figure, isn't he, in this chapter? I'll skip to the nice parts. Oh, 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 he's so, he's so exclusive. He used the word jealous. I mean, he's so authoritative. He doesn't share his power, glory, sovereignty, or majesty. I mean, everybody needs to worship him. Uh, uh, he only gives one Savior, really, Jesus just one what about what about all the people who haven't heard I mean I just wouldn't do things this sovereign God that everything sickness or occurrence everything is ordained by him I'm, I'm not sure I would do it that way I don't think that honors free will enough whatever we may say when we read or see or have the true God presented to us whenever whenever we start a sentence with that's not how I view God or God to me is like... Or I prefer to think about God as whenever we do, or even we can go earlier, whenever you read something in the Bible and catch yourself reeling, you go, oh, I'm glad glad my progressive friends aren't here reading this with me. Whenever you read something and and you you get insulted, you, you get jarred, right there is the seed of idolatry. Because if you were to worship the God based on your imagination's Preferences and perceptions, you would be worshiping a created image made by you. It always starts with a dislike of God. That is why, in this, look back at Exodus chapter 20. That is why God calls anybody who worships pictures haters of Him. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who worship pictures. Not what it says, but it's the same thing. We want it to read, whoa, 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 I don't hate you. I love you so much, I want a picture of you. I love you so much that I don't want to think of you as as an all-sovereign judge. I would rather think of you as my granddaddy. That's all. I love you so much, I'd rather think of you my way. And God says, that is synonymous to hatred. If you prefer something other than me, God says, I count that as hate. Any, any husband would know this, that if, that if you were to say to your wife and convince your wife that you love her, and, and, and you say to the world, I, I love her, and, and, and here he is, and he's married to a, a short, uh, a blonde-headed uh, 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 European gal, and he says to all his mates on his wedding day, I, I love her, I, I love her long legs, I love her flowing brown hair, I love her her Filipina uh, background, I love her, I love her, and, and everyone's sitting here going, he... I mean, if that's his thing, I, I think he hates his wife. She's short, she's blonde, she's different to that. She, if you love something and then try and say, oh, oh but it's not at all insulting to you. God, God, God says in, in this image, as we say, we love you, but I'll worship this thing of you. Uh, I prefer the image of that I've created about you or edited from you. God calls that hatred of him. It's hatred of him. And so we are all inclined, naturally... De- like don't, don't hear this and go, all right, how, how do I make sure I'm not like that? How, how do I make sure that I'm probably better than the rest of them and I can just pretend that I don't do that? And Yeah, that's... What-. No, none of us are going to be kept or saved from being condemned by this law. Every single one of us do it. I do it. You do it. Every one of the greatest theologians, the most godly-hearted men and women of all history do it. The difference between us... And and those who commit idolatry, those churches that go down into horrible false worship, is simply this. Do we carve off our idolatrous preferences with the word of God rightly applied and exegeted? That's the question. Do we, each of us, daily, weekly, in the church Sabbath gathering, do we come to the word and say, Lord, like a sandblaster, come and shoot off all of the rust of my heart by which I have been adding little things to you adding other characteristics, denying other certain things, preaching expositionally, exposing ourselves to the word of God so that his word shapes our image of God rather than images shaping how we view him. All of us must guard against the toleration of editing God. This is what J.I. Packer said in in a book called Knowing God. He said, God is not the sort of person that we are. We cannot possibly guess our way to God's attributes by intuition or we can't infer them by analogy from our notion of ideal manhood, like here's perfect man, God must be kind of like that, maybe a bit better. No, we can't do that with God. We cannot know him unless he speaks and tells us about himself. Thus, it appears that the positive force of the second commandment is that it compels us to take our thoughts of God from his holy word and from no other source whatsoever. No other source whatsoever must we think of God in his essential, true, personal nature. And and also, look at this. The worship of God, especially in the corporate ga- I'm not just making this individualistic. We need to bring this to the to, to the reality that it also that, that that it was on the first time it was spoken. That God speaks to His corporate people. Look at chapter twenty and verse uh, five again, as, as we just read the, the second half of it. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, now, now it's not it's not speaking of some kind of in uh, 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 some kind of genetic spiritual cursing that, that, that is latent on you and until you have hands laid on and, and broken off, you have some kind of spiritual generational curse. It's not that. But don't hear me saying, ah, it's not that bad. I'm saying it's worse than that. It's not that demons have their hands on you because of your genetical line. It's that God gives his judgment to you because of your spiritual lineage. That is to say that, that sins... It is not as if children are punished for their fathers' and parents' sins. It is that the children who partake in their parents' sins get a cumulative, growing sense and effect of God's judgment as the generations go by. God's judgment does not sit idle. It compounds. Now, I think if this was any other commandment that God said this part to, because it's true of every sin, but if it was on any other sin, we'd, it'd probably seem very natural. The violent man who beats his children will will damage his family line and will pass down that kind of sinful behavior. Yeah, that makes sense. The drunken, the the the, the, the lavish and selfish and stingy, or the or the, or, or the 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 wasteful and the and the throwing away their money. These sins that'll that'll compound and affect your family lineage. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the, the sexual addictive and the sinful in those ways and the corrupt lusts that will be passed down from generation to generation. and can children do anything but what they've seen in their parents? and we say that that makes a lot of sense. divorce. Oh, if there's, if there's useless and horrible and ungrounded violent divorce of families and families, don't we, we see this in our own family trees, that, that it affects the children and, and the children's children. Is't that true? We go, yeah, absolutely. But worshiping God with a picture, how does my kid get anything from that that, that, that that is compounding of judgment? I think that would probably strike most of us. Why does he say it to this one? That idolatry, worshipping God through pictures or editing his word in any way. Why is, why is his judgment addended in such a way to this commandment? And probably it's because we're, we're least likely to think it applies to this commandment. Probably because this is, this is the primary commandment that we break. Which leads to all of the others breaking. To make it really practical, what I'm saying is this it is true that the church you go to, the sermons you hear Sunday by Sunday, the doctrinal teaching that your children are devouring, the sorts of things they hear from God, either at school or by Sunday school teachers, God is saying, You never hear teaching about me, you never relate to me in a certain way wrongly, and it doesn't compound judgment. And corruption and horror upon your family line. How, how weakly most people take the kind of church we go to. Great children's program. Yeah, I know she preaches a little off every now and then. You know, she tips the hat to Muhammad here and there. Oh, Lady Reverend should not be your pastor. Oh, I know, just so many good friends here, you know, I, I wouldn't leave, it. and I know, you know, they they touch the Bible every now and then, but I do my great devotions from some really reformed guys, that's what I, you know, we, we need the community. No, you need a community around you, and a word before you that won't compound judgment on your family, that's what you need. Christians need to go somewhere that they will hear the word, be encouraged by the word of others, and have the Bible slice off the idolatry from our hearts, lest us, not even just us, but our children more so be led into judgment under God. Next, we can ask, if if this is what the commandment tells us, and we realize every one of us, to some degree or another, are condemned by it, Where then is the good news that is found in Jesus Christ for all those who have broken in mind, in deed, and in word the commandments of God? Is there good news? And the answer is aboundingly yes, there is good news. It is not the case, let's talk about this first, it's not the case that simply, simply because God says no pictures, it does not follow that God therefore says no mediators. We might hear God say, no pictures, no images, no statues, and we go, "Ah, oh, God's just sort of thrown down the ladder, he's chopped off the beanstalk, and none of us can ev- ever know anything about God. I guess he just wants to keep to himself, keep us, and, and he'd rather us be ignorant of him and, and have no real relational, analogous relation, uh, uh, interaction with him. He would prefer that, and the answer is, no, not at all. Friends, in the Old Covenant, did God appoint and give to the Israelite nation mediators? Yes, he did. And they were people. They were fallen people. They were imperfect people. But, but watch this. Isn't it amazing that he says, you don't make images of God. I've made images of God. They're called people. You want to see the image of God put, put most powerfully on display? It's in a godly person who walks like their God. So so God doesn't say stones won't do, lions won't do. Ah, there's nothing that can represent me towards you guys that'll ever be helpful. No, he does. He says, here's men, prophets. Here's men, priests. Here's, Here's men... Uh, kings And, and they will mediate something to you but of course they all fell short because of their sin and their inability to truly and powerfully ultimately and perfectly represent God to us and so what God does in Jesus Christ, isn't this amazing he doesn't just come and float around in a cloud as God nor does he come merely as a man, nor does he come merely as a page on a book being the word but he's all three. He is God in true human flesh. So, so he's true God. He's, he's the best version of the image of God. And he is the word of God made flesh. That is to say, whether we are used to reading the Bible and saying God reveals through his word, well, here's Jesus, the word. God reveals himself to us through mediated, appointed people. Well, here's Jesus, the person mediating God to us. Well, well, God, 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 really no one other than God can even represent God. Will Jesus do? Oh, yes, he's fully and entirely God. He is unique in this sense. Listen to what the New Testament speaks of Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. How can that be spoken of a human being? That is beyond us. This is the mystery of God in flesh. Or Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible. You don't need idols. They're never an image of the invisible God. Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. John 14 verse 9, this is what Jesus says. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Before Jesus, they were told, you can never see the Father. You will never see the Father. Don't don't hope to see the Father. You can't. But in Jesus' appearance, he can say, "Not you can't see the Father. Just, Just get satisfied with me. I'll do. He says, to look on me, in a way that God has made understandable, relational, accessible, this is what the Father looks like. Compassionate with sinners, loving to those that are downtrodden and fallen, merciful to those who are rebellious against his laws, sovereign, powerful, fearful to be trifled with, yet extending his arms to shed his blood in mercy for those who need it. This is what God looks like. It is Jesus. Now, don't hear from that. Well, that's why a picture of Jesus helps me. That's why I take a screenshot of the show. I put it in my Bible because he's the image. No, he is the image. And how is God revealed? Now that Jesus is gone, back up to heaven for a time, what is the thing that God gives to us for us to see Jesus? Is it a TV show? Is it a picture in the back of the Bible? No, it's not even a description of what he looked like in his earthly ministry. You know what we get? The apostolic word in the New Testament. So, so we're back to this: that, that to see Jesus is to see the Father, but to see the truth of the gospel is to see Jesus' face. At least until we get to heaven. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says that Paul says that the minds of the unbelievers are blinded to keep them from seeing. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, Jesus is the glory of God. But 2 Corinthians and other places tell us that if you want to behold Jesus, if you want to have him as close to visible as possible. In, in this age when we live by faith and not sight, you want the next best thing right up, almost almost falling into sight, and yet, and yet somehow it doesn't. You need the sight of faith. The spiritual sight which beholds Jesus in the gospel as all that He is for us, as as a savior from sin, as a as a redeemer from God's wrath, as a as, as, a, as a as a righteousness for all those who have been condemned by the law, as a king to rule us, a priest to pray for us, a, a prophet to speak to us, the the husband of the church, the the helper and the defender of all of us who are in need to behold Jesus for us by faith alone in the gospel. That is the closest thing we get till he comes back to having any sight at all. That is how we worship Jesus. That is how we understand Jesus and know God deeply and intimately. This is how we behold Yahweh without breaking the second commandment. But of course it goes deeper. Because because all of that is great. How it reveals God. What it commands of us. And then we hear Jesus perfectly fulfills the, 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 the commandment. What we haven't said is okay, not just how can we see God more clearly in Christ, but what do we do about our sin? I hope that's been the burning question on you. Is This is helpful, this is amazing, this is great. But if all that Jesus is, is another revelation of God, then we will just fall even further short of that again. I'm a sinner. Pastor, tell me how a guilty, defiled sinner that has been breaking this commandment every day of my life, in thought, word, and deed, how can I be accepted by God? And the reality is that God has shed forth his mercy in abundance for sinners. Look at Exodus chapter 20. The, the gospel's not here, but a clue of the gospel is here. Look at chapter 20, and verse, the end of verse 5 into verse 6, where he said for, that for those who hate him and break his commandment about idolatry, he will visit and compound that judgment to the third and fourth generation. Verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This isn't maths to go and try and play, well, well, how many great-great-grandfathers do I need to have as Christians before my, my, my line is sealed? It's, it's not maths. It, it's, it's an analogy of abundance that he says, this is, how, this is how judgmental I will be, three and four generations, but to a thousand generations. There hasn't even been a thousand generations on earth yet. But to a thousand generations of those who love him, he will love to shed forth his mercy. This is, this is what Thomas Watson says about this part, the, this part of the Ten Commandments. He says, the vial of God's wrath only drops, but the fountain of his mercy runs. Three in four generations? Is that it for a thrice holy God? That's all he condemns. So far, right now, but the mercy that is in a fountain, waterfall, it, it flows, it runs, Watson says, the sun is not as full of light as God is full of love. If you were standing there that day on Sinai and you heard that, God's so judgmental, he'll, he'll pass down his, his, the, the punishment for breaking this commandment to three and four generations, we need to make sure we get it right, and then you hear him say, but I will be merciful to thousands of generations of those who love me. You would be struck to say, this is a merciful, saving God. No one's bending his arm to forgive us. He seems to delight in doing this. And that is the God that I, that I, that I hold forth for you today. This is the God that sent his own self, his own son, into this world in the person of Jesus. Not to tell us how to do better. But to, to die for the payment of our sins on the cross, rose again three days later, and then he publishes this amazing, glorious good news to you. Not just to people 2,000 years ago, not just to your, to your religious auntie and grandma, you. No matter the sins you've committed. No matter how guilty you may feel, God delights. He loves to pour out mercy. And if you just rest on Jesus, you say, let Jesus take my sin. Jesus, I want you to be my savior. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to worship this God falsely. Jesus, receive me. He will. He forgives you. He justifies you and cleanses you and welcomes you into God's family. Let's pray. Father God, we are by nature an idolatrous race. Since the fall of Adam into sin, every single human being, Romans 1 tells us, naturally worships the things we see compared to and and against the God that we can't see. We are naturally short-sighted spiritually and corrupted so that everything we do worship, even if we try and worship the right God, we we still get everything wrong. And, And this is the thing that we would get most wrong, Lord God. That you would ever enter into our nature, into our sinful race, to then pay for all of our sins, yourself, before your father, and then raise to rule and reign over a kingdom. That we would never guess. This is proof that we are idolatrous. This is proof that, that the Bible is not written by foolish, sinful men that no one could ever imagine such a glorious, mystical, majestic concept as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father God, we confess and we have the permission to confess openly and freely that we have liberally broken this commandment. We are frequently dissatisfied with how you present yourself to us in the Bible. We are frequently preferring other ideas of you. We, we often prefer an image to relate to you, and yet we can confess all of this sin, because you have come, and in Jesus Christ, you have paid our guilt. You have have carried out the transaction in our place, Jesus, that leaves us with nothing left to pay. Please now, Lord Jesus Christ, give faith to those who do not yet trust in you. Please give belief so that they can, knowing themselves to be sinners, know that they can be saved and forgiven because of Jesus and nothing because of what they have done. Please, Lord God, give new faith. And for the rest of us, please lead us into a sanctified mind, into sanctified worship so that we can glorify you for all that you are for us in purity and in holiness in a way that you will accept. Father God, we thank you for being merciful to us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray and everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.